1: We were launching a new wine bar. Everyone's like, it's just a wine bar. How are you gonna get noise? We created the world's first Prosecco ATM and we it basically served Prosecco on tap. And it was, looked like an ATM, looked like a bag machine. This little like yellow thing that we put outside. We had a queue for hours. That campaign made Good Morning Britain. We had it on the Jimmy Fallon show being discussed between the Super Bowl and the State of the Union. I think marketers at the moment, everyone's complicating shit of like, Trying to create new when it's like the best exists in all the boring stuff that we do every day, and how you bring that to life.
0: Email marketers, fed up with bounced emails? Get your bounce rate below 2% by verifying your emails with zero bounds. Identify 30 plus email types with 99% accuracy guarantee. Visit www.zerobounce.com. Dot .net and use promo code millennials20 for 20% off today. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today we have Charlotte all the way from across the pond. Excited to chat with her. She has an interesting way of approaching marketing which you might know Some people who do this because you might listen to some popular artists out there who have the same type of strategy when approaching marketing. So thank you, Charlotte, for coming on this podcast, and I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: I want to start off on how did you even get into marketing?
1: So I probably did everything to the opposite of what my parents wanted me to do. My older brother was like a mathematician and hella clever, went to the best unis. I went to uni and dropped out. Whilst I was at uni, I had a love for, I'd been kind of hustling since I was about 15, um, throwing parties, making money, doing things on the side, working with up-and-coming artists, all that kind of stuff. And I went to uni and I was like, actually, I really want to work. And I originally started off in events. So I was studying in Brighton in the south of the UK and I was traveling to London three days a week to do an internship in events management. And I just loved it. And they were paying me like, fuck all, like <laughs> it's not, not earning anything. And then at the weekends I'd be back in Brighton and I'd do my silver service at um, golf courses and horse racing just to make money to help pay my rent. So I could do the internship in the week. And I was obsessed. I was that kid obsessed with celebrities and pop culture from a very, very young age. I'm obviously black, but we were raised in a very white area. So pop culture and celebrity and marketing was a bit of an escapism for me, but I didn't know what it was. It was just stuff that I saw, right? Very rarely with black folk in it. So from a young age, I was obsessive about that stuff. And then when I started to understand events, I started to look more at the marketing side of it. And I actually read a book by Richard Branson around PR power. And that is when I was like, I'm going to be a publicist. At the time, I was also watching shows like Footballer's Wives. So originally I was like, I'm going to be that woman. If a footballer has an affair, I go in and negotiate with the woman that he's had the affair with and we do diamonds and dollars in exchange to keep the story quiet. So I really liked crisis comms from a celebrity perspective and the exchange that you do with the media to make stories go away for celebrities and political people and that kind of landscape. So I started off there thinking, yep, celebrity publicist, brokering deals. And then I started to get more into the brand side. And with the agency, I literally read a book and started the agency about 12 weeks later. So I didn't have any official training. I am officially a uni dropout. I didn't, I didn't have a Scooby really. I just knew I wanted to create cool shit and tell really great stories that weren't I hate talking about D and I, that weren't inclusive and kind of the wanky way that we talk about it now, but were like everyone just felt like they were a part of the conversation. And that was where my focus on marketing kind of evolved from events and PR into full brand marketing and strategy where I I kind of sit now.
0: Before we got on this podcast, you say you tell people that you just do cool shit for marketing, but I want to go into what do you describe as cool shit and what is your approach to marketing artists, restaurants, brands? How do you think about it? I strongly believe that hip hop shapes everything. So
1: The stories of what the OGs did back in the day, the fact that Biggie still lives on however many years after his death and still sell out a range at Kith and Fila, shows what that era in the 90s did to reframe marketing. So if you look at like, I think it was 1992, MC Hammer had an advert with Taco Bell and with KFC that year. And it was kind of the first time that hip hop went into the food space. If we now look at how many hip hop artists own Food brands like DJ Khaled's got his another wing that they did like a global launch, like 11 countries one night following all the principles of hip hop hop culture that sat around limited availability, drop culture, and incredible teaser campaigns. And in the UK, that's something that we're not very good at. As a country, we're very transactional. Whereas when you look at America and how anything launches, like if you think about when Yeezy launched, right? There's like a 12-week program that Chris Jenner is following with anything that they launch, right? So Kanye's scene wearing these trainers 12 weeks out, and everyone's like, holy hell, hype beast, high sobriety, complex. Everyone's picking up and running the stories. About eight weeks out, you'll see Kim wearing them, then the kids, then the sisters. By that point, everyone's like, where can we buy them? Everyone's signed up on a wait list. Then they would drop the boxes, the shoe boxes with all the celebrity names, Obamas, everything else to kind of keep leveling up that brand and that aspiration and driving that desire in consumers. And so fools like me will queue around the block in New York at Stadium Goods to get me those damn trainers because I want to be a part of that. And it's kind of taking the principles of what Supreme did and how they evolved from the skateboard community into the hip-hop community and how now they've got you know collaborations with people like Pat McGrath we're seeing, like I said the other day, and I've written a LinkedIn post on this, about basically Barbie, the rollout of that, followed the blueprint of hip hop, of how you create hype, demand, and legacy. Like we will never forget the hype around this movie coming out and every marketing saying, what was their bloody budget? The demand that's going to be to go and see this film and to be a part of it. And that's not just from a cinematic perspective. That's the fact that they've done all these clothing deals, jewelry deals, shoe deals, like all the sub-brands that are driving this conversation. And then the legacy of some of these moments, you know, the Malibu house that's Ken's house in, like it's that, that's how you build an incredible campaign. And that's what hip hop has been doing for forever. It's how Biggie made Cristal what it is, Timberland boots what they are, That those brands still live off of that cultural currency from like 20, 30 years ago.
0: I love that. I want to go like break it down. Let's say I am a new restaurant or a new brand coming to you, let's say not even restaurant, but a new brand or a person coming to you, and I want to launch, have a launch, what is like the first one, two, three, four, five steps that you would approach that on?
1: So the first thing is to find out how ballsy the stakeholders are, because that influences a lot of our work. Like we need to know the risk. <laughs> people are like happy to go with us too. So that's probably the first thing that we establish. And then really finding out how people if it's an existing brand, if it's a legacy brand, how people feel about that brand. And then we start to structure how you build fandom. So how are people going to engage with this and where are they going to engage with this? So we, in just before lockdown, so Jan 2020, we were launching a new wine bar. Everyone's like, it's just a wine bar. How are you going to get noise? We created the world's first Prosecco ATM and we, it basically served Prosecco on tap and it was looked like an ATM, looked like a bag machine. It's little like Yellow thing that we put outside. We had a queue for hours. That campaign made Good Morning Britain. We had it on the Jimmy Fallon show being discussed between the Super Bowl and the State of the Union. And it was the most simple thing of everyone loves a bloody free glass of something, and everybody understands what an ATM machine does. And you just put the desire that is the champagne and the everyday mundane of an ATM together. You make it bright yellow, and you've got a queue around the block. There's, I think. Marketers at the moment, everyone's complicating shit of like trying to create new when it's like the best exists in all the boring stuff that we do every day and how you bring that to life. So yeah, normally a bit different. We did did another campaign that was a house of ice cream. Again, the only thing that connected these 300 restaurants was their ice cream. We took Kylie Jenner's lip kit just before she was titled a self-made billionaire, the dripping of how she had them on the kits. They sold out, you know, within minutes. And we turned that branding into the branding with our clients into a house of ice cream. Then we created a hero dish that was ice cream, hot sauce and fried chicken. And that was the image that blew up everywhere for us. But it it was ice cream, nothing. We just pop cultured it with the synonymous look of Kylie Jenner's lip kits that everyone was dying to buy at the time. And that's how we bridged the two things together.
0: inspiration is everywhere out there sometimes the most simple ideas are the best ideas and when i mean simple it means like they're right in front of you you don't have to go searching around to find the best new ideas people have created new ideas is just taking like you said two obsolete things that weren't connected before like ice cream and kylie jenner's lip kit putting it together and now you have a new campaign But what I love about it is that if you're going to do this, you have to be a strong consumer of pop culture, strong understanding of it. If you're going to do a campaign like this, understand why Kylie Jenner's lip kit works like that. Understand how they dropped it. Reverse engineer it for your brand. Don't just copy exactly what they're doing. Just take the good elements and attach it. And I think what I'm getting from you is that you are – and your team probably are just deep consumers of pop culture, but you also understand like marketing. So you're taking those two points together and putting, clashing together and making a whole new idea. Um, And for people who are listening, that is like, don't reinvent the wheel, just innovate on the wheel that exists today.
1: And in a world where every brand is trying to get people to look down at their phones be the brand or the business that gives people a reason to look up because that's where no one's actually playing in the same way that they used to because we still all have to commute. We still have to do a food shop. We still have to do all those things as humans to survive. And there's so much opportunity within that. And I think that, yes, we've still got the experiential, you know, I just I just got back from Can Lions and that was really interesting to see the beaches and how all of that came to life. But yeah, a time when everyone's looking down, give people a reason to look up.
0: What are some of the best inspirations to look at? What does good look like, if that makes sense? I think there's a lot of bad out there. So what does good look
1: like? (laughs) A book that changed my life that we have stacks of in the office that we send out to people was a book called The Tanning of America by Steve Stout. Um, Steve Stout was obviously a music mogul. He's negotiated some of the biggest deals in hip hop. But he wrote this book talking about how hip hop took America, basically, and how they put how hip hop—that was this genre that you know people were burning and breaking CDs and vinyls in the street. How they swept America with it, took brand the biggest brand deals ever. If you think about the moment of, um, again, one of my favorite moments, Run DMC, Manchester Square Gardens, my Adidas, and how Run DMC became the face of Adidas and where Adidas Originals was born from. Those moments are the game changers. It's the stakeholders that will take the risk and also understand true, true influence as well. We're in a gratification era right now that is built on this influencer that's got half a million followers. If we do a campaign with them, that's gonna help sell out. But what people aren't realizing is that people don't normally buy from the influencer. The influencer is just another distribution channel to become a consideration. The actual, I'm gonna go and buy this is normally leveraged by something in pop culture pop culture sets. If you take like Black Twitter, right? And what this this whole sub community that is now a whole community in itself, they take really simple things and build the biggest amount of hype that make them pop culture moments, but that it's not done in this paid ads. It's not done in this really contrived way. It's done in a moment that becomes a something. That's why you've got all the memes and everything else. Those things are driven by places like Black Twitter. So if you can understand sub-communities and understand that what you see in the mainstream day-to-day has normally started a subculture or a sub-community and you can build a strategy that has your always on, what that's underpinned by, which is normally the underserved and the underheard, that's pop culture. Because what we see, what we buy in the stores was kicking it about three years ago within the people, the communities that people weren't paying attention to. So if you can get there first, that's the best part of pop culture in its purest sense before it becomes the mainstream.
0: The one thing that like hip hop artists do very well is like people don't see the hustle that they do before that drop and all that stuff. Like there's uh, so many things like they have to create that mixtape or they have to create, and then they have to go like sling it in the streets Mm -hmm. to people and then they have to go drop it on, SoundCloud or different yeah. places, and then people eventually start picking up on it, and then they have the hustle to go get the deal. They're doing like all those, these marketing things before grassroots, before that they even get to a deal. But nobody sees it like all that hustle that happened before all these artists popped off. There was so much little things that they did that were if you take the foundations of what they did, and you're a startup. Like, it's so scrappy. Like, they put content marketing, putting out mixtapes, outbound marketing, going to like give people things, guerrilla marketing, standing in streets and yeah. finding cool ways to do like all these little things that um they do when they starting and then they blow up. Like, you see all these stories, I mean, of like Nicki Minaj when she started out and all these people where they started out where they just like were super scrappy. It, People forget about that and they just think, oh, they just blew up. But no, there's like, so many moments before that happened that led them to that moment.
1: But East Lowe's the greatest marketeer of all time. That is my absolute belief. His legacy, based on everything that you've just said, is, is the guiding principles that mainstream marketeers now use to build their strategy. But that was happening back in the 80s on the block in a completely different way that people weren't paying attention to, but marketing strategies now are built on the fundamentals of what hip hop was doing 30 years ago.
0: Yearly email list decay is about 23%. You think you're exempt, but we've seen so many businesses lose their email provider due to high bounce rates. For one client, 21% of the list was invalid. Around two in 10 emails, a 20% bounce rate. Thankfully, Zero Bounce email verification eliminates bounces with 99% guaranteed accuracy. Visit www.zerobounce.net and use promo code MILLENNIALS20 for 20% off today. There's no easier way to zero bounces. Do you think a lot of marketers don't do this because they're scared of hustling or do you think they do, don't do it because they're just scared of taking risks? Because I think there's like, I'm saying from like the beginning, like you have to do some risky stuff at the beginning to get your name out there. So I know you said it before, like the first thing you ask people is like, what the risk you want to take? Do you think it's a lot of people don't stand out because they're not willing to take the risk or what? what's the reason that they're not doing these these things that <laughs> are happening? I, I
1: have such a mixed answer on this. I think everything's become very beige because everyone's looking for perfection. I think a really good example of how you unbeige that with your risk is if you think about what Pharrell just did with Louis Vuitton. So you had the perfect Louis Vuitton feed on Instagram, but then you had the burner account, essentially skateboard, that Pharrell started, where he was just dropping unfiltered, unedited. This is the rollout. This is what's coming to life. And the engagement of that was so much higher than Louis. if you do it numbers for numbers, that it shows you that customers aren't looking for perfection. It's the reason why TikTok has become TikTok. People aren't looking for that perfection anymore. And I think for the last 10 years with the rise of influence marketing, people were in perfection. So risk was less because they didn't really want risk. Everyone wanted something that looked nice. Post-COVID, everyone wanted nice. Now we're hopefully, I hope, stepping out of that era and stepping back into being a little bit more ballsier even like to the Barbie thing they've done a very mainstream lots of activations but then they've got Ice Spice and Nicki Minaj, redoing, Aqua, Barbie Girl. They've got these elements of risk that take them into the subcultures and subcommunities. So then they're taking all audiences. So I think that people are catching up because the nice pretty mainstream with the beige influences are all post aesthetically perfect. They don't sell products anymore. That's the truth of it. They're not shifting units. So at that point, that's where you see marketers go, oh, right, we'll jump over to TikTok. There's, that is where people being a little bit more real, but you're now seeing TikToks becoming a little bit perfect on certain things and you're seeing those numbers drop. But the people that are being reckless and chaotic on there have got the highest engagement. So I think we were shied away from risk because influencers sold us this dream of perfection. But I think consumers have gotten out of that and are just like, no, give us, give us, Especially in a cost of living crisis, people don't want to see your perfect life. They want to see your raw life. They want to know that you are struggling to pay your electricity and heating bill the same as them, and that requires a from a human behavior perspective, a completely different approach to perfection that we've been sold for the last ten years.
0: I saw someone post us that yesterday their predictions of how influencer marketing is going to go, and one of the things what they were saying is that. It's gonna go less about like, hey, I'm using this product to what you said, Kanye and Kim did, where it's like product placement, like, oh, I'm wearing this product, I'm using it in every single day, naturally, like in the video, but they're not saying, oh, I'm using that, 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 that. It's like more like, oh, what sneakers is that? Is that that influencer wearing on the street? Like, for example, my wife, she's obsessed with. A couple like influencers, and every time they put on something new, she's like, What is that? She's screenshotting, she's like scrolling in to see like the bag. She's not doing it because like they're selling, she's doing it because they actually wearing that stuff and love that. That even if they might have a partnership in the background that they have to wear that every single day, she's still like, Oh, if this influencer is wearing it, it must be a great product.
1: I think that's the difference between marketing and selling versus marketing living and the marketing living is what people are looking for right now they trust that more than you know like hennessy's just rolling out they just started doing some work with nas you can see on their instagram and it's like well yeah because nas has been with them for however many years you see him drinking that drink whereas five years ago other drink brands it was just about putting a bottle in someone's hand and going yeah they drink this even though everyone knows that they don't drink it so that ecosystem of what you've always done again the mundane you're always on life is going to become what naturally sells
0: the funny thing is that and we've said it a little bit in this podcast it's been going on for years this stuff like product placement in movies drop culture like you talked about like strategically placing new items in celebrities hands without saying that they're they're there something that's been going on for a little while, is just that we've got stuck into the these playbooks that hey, you have to do it like this, you have to do it like that. Where like there's a reason why it's worked in the past, and that's why it's also important that I I always say like you should always have like long term partnerships with influencers. It shouldn't be one off transactional. Hey, show me your your product. It's get them incorporated into your brand's life. So then they actually can naturally show it live it instead of being like hey i use this product type of thing
1: yeah then the now next future influencer plan that rolls out over a three-year period is the best way when i think about the campaigns that we've done they're the best ways to make them work and understanding that high numbers doesn't some of the most influential people that i follow are fully from the micro community and I trust what they say. The big boys, I'm like, I know you've just been paid 20K to say that. Like it's, we're just so much more aware.
0: What are some of your favorite campaigns that you've ran in the past or favorite things? I know you've said a lot in this podcast, but what are, what are some things that come to mind of, wow, this is like, or a risk you took that was like, Oh, goodness, I don't know if this is going to pan out, but it did. What are some things that you've.
1: Yeah, we signed a big restaurant group um, in the UK, and they are, we'll say, influenced by Caribbean culture. And they had done things in the past that were just not right. So when they approached me and said, Would you come in and work strategy and comms and things for us? I was like, Absolutely not. And they said, you know, come and talk to the team, come and da da So our first campaign that we did for them was in October for Black History Month. And I was sat at my parents' house and they rung me and they said, this is what we're thinking. And I was like, stop it. No, went, no. And there was a newspaper on my mum's um, coffee table. And I said, we're going to launch a newspaper. And the marketing director said, well, what, where's that come from? I was like, we're gonna team up with The Gleaner that is the biggest newspaper across the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica, which is a big part of where that food comes from. And we're gonna create a newspaper in partnership with them and we're gonna get all black writers to do it. And we're gonna get two really dominant people who speak on culture to be the guest editors of it. We had about three weeks to turn this around and get this into tens of restaurant sites. And that's because, again, I represent my culture and my community working to get that absolutely right was really 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 important and four days after we signed another client I was literally lobbying like a politician on the phone to the culture and the community saying yo like you gotta come out for this I've never let you guys down before like this is what we're doing to get black owned businesses into the supply chain like had a full like strategy and that was a risk from a personal perspective because culturally you see whenever a big a black-owned brand sells to a Procter and Gamble or a Unilever. Everyone tells them that they're a sellout. You know, when rappers do big deals, they get called a sellout for not starting and owning it and building it and for flogging it. So There's a real within our culture. There's a real line around some of that. So that was that was definitely risky. And we we recently pitched for a big brand, global brand, and we went into the pitch in the morning. And I said to them at midnight last night, I did not know if I was going to pitch for this because I didn't know if you were going to do the right thing for the brand. And my team were like, holy shit, did she just say that? And I think that's probably with us. Our biggest risk is normally around the integrity of doing the right thing, not the easy thing. And I think a lot of marketing is the easy thing at the moment. Oh, Threads has launched today. Let's just get on there. Like, There's no like, what is the plan here? Well, everyone else is doing it, so we've got to do it. Well, if you don't have a presence on Twitter, like it's that side that for us is is the riskier side because we try and remain an agency that operates in its purest sense for everybody that we serve and and all communities that we talk to. But we like to push the boundaries. And we just today I got a phone call from a big brand that said, we want to get to where you guys are and what you do, but we're going to go with a safer option for now. And we get that. Like if we lose a pitch, it's normally because of that reasoning. Never the creative. They love the creative. It's always there. Or that feels a bit too, even though they know it's the right thing. But then what happens is 18 months later, when they've gone and done the boring again, they come back and they're like, right, we're ready, Charlotte. Like, let's go do. So explain that to my, fi- my FD is a harder conversation, but trying to stay pure to keep your integrity is a risk in itself before you've even put pen to paper of creative.
0: And it's like true branding of standing for something. And even if it's like, sometimes you can't, don't take a client because it doesn't fit your brand or sometimes you don't do a campaign because it doesn't fit how you would go to market with that campaign i think that's the truest form of what brand actually is like strong brand is having those ethos and having those ethics and having those um, level of how you want to go to market in your way in part of it and people should take even like brand should take that as a consideration is that if it doesn't fit your brand and it makes you some money today, six months from now, people will come with the receipts and be like, hey, you did this, you were a sellout, I'm not gonna use you again. So I love that you stand for something and you're not going to, even if a client wants you to go vanilla, you're not gonna go vanilla. And think
1: in the business as well, like you, we always say like as an agency, we wouldn't sell you something that we wouldn't do. And I think that as well, when you're pick, think, when brands are thinking about their partners. So I take my team to Coachella because I'm like, I need you to be amongst culture to be able to understand how you talk about it. You need to see how it's done in America on this scale. So when you come back to the UK, you think about how you adapt it for the UK and the European market that is substantially smaller. I think that's one of the big things as well with brands is that often the advisors know how to use Google. So they talk about cool hmm, shit because they Googled it, but they've never actually lived it. And living amongst culture is a fundamental for doing culture really, really well and understanding what conversations you enter, which ones are just not your lane. Like that's a big we we threw a roller disco in 2019 for our Christmas party. We had garage music. We had a full garage lineup. We hired out this roller skating home. We had my 85-year-old grandmother on roller skates, as well as our biggest spending client. We had a gospel choir, dominoes came and did the catering. Like it went off. And it's like, that's how we live. For the Barbie movie, we're trying to hire out cinema at the moment to a screening of it for our clients. Like, you have to be in it and you have to show that you spend your marketing on that as well. It's become so easy to Google. As opposed to people that are like, I got this shit because I live in it. Like, I'm out outside in this world. Um, and I think that's, again, where a lot of brands actually go wrong is the advisors that tell them what to do, who aren't a part of certain communities, who just, as I say, can use Google and TikTok.
0: I mean, Coachella is a good indicator because I think every single year, because I'm from California and I used to go to Coachella every year. Every year is a different vibe there's a different way that influencers are doing things like three years ago was like the, or like four years ago was like, I need to get the perfect Instagram pick there. And then now it's like heavy on like TikTok experience videos. Like there's like the different things. And then also how brands are rolling out things at the, those things. I think it's cool to say like, Hey, I understand that. But also I think, I think a lot of, because like, i know i see my cousins they live in london they're influenced by a lot of like american culture things but you have to adapt it for the british culture because i think there is like this like and this is, is good because they love their culture brits love their culture like, you have to adapt it for their culture yeah. like your culture otherwise people are going to be like you're just being American in the UK. You have to understand why why it works in America and then adapt it to your yeah. culture. And I think that's like a problem a lot of people have is like, they try to, uh, probably a lot of American brands make this mistake in the UK. They take the American stuff and try to put it- in have had a lot of- American things. way.
1: Yeah. yeah, the cultural nuance and understanding how that comes to life in a marketplace, in an audience and in a consumer perspective, is kind of key. And a lot of restaurant groups have come over from the US and thinking, we're just going to do what we do in the U.S. It's like, no, no, that's not, how Brits, that's not how Brits move even a little bit. We love the aspiration of that. We love the American dream side of that, but also very dry, humoured, a little bit negative. <laughs> like there are these other little pockets that you need to kind of take that and play into.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody on this podcast. What is a marketing hill you would die on?
1: Probably what I said at the beginning, hip hop shapes everything.
0: Yeah, I love it, and I think standing on that roots, I think it's crazy how if you just see a lot of things directionally, how a lot of brands move and how culture moves. It all starts. Even like looking at the newer generation, like Mm -hmm. hip hop is shaping like every little thing that they do—the way they talk, the way that they interact, the way that they dress, the way that they. They think about things. It's like all shaped on the even like, but it's also cool, it's like it's learning how it evolves too, because I think it has evolved through the years, but it's still like deeply rooted in in culture.
1: Yeah. I, I think as well, the the days when it started where the rappers were from the projects and that was the story. The stories now evolved to the rappers are the billionaires and they are the entrepreneurs and they are building enterprise and they are working on prison reform and all those things, like even I was a bit obsessed with the Michael Rubin July 4th party video. Oh, crazy. I mean, anybody that was, anybody was at his house in the Hamptons, but even when you look at that and you go, what were the roots of white party? It was Diddy's, Diddy's white Parties back in the day. So even that that is now full of billionaires, well, that started off back in the Jay-Z when they were all coming through era, it's still here now. It was probably the most, I don't even know how many articles I've seen in the last 48 hours around who is this Michael billionaire but it was it was all of that. If you look at streetwear, there was a time when streetwear was quite frowned upon. It now influences the biggest luxury brands in the world. Like they have to. That's why Pharrell is now at Louis Vuitton. if You think about what Virgil did. It comes into all pockets. And I think sometimes people think hip hop means black, and they think, oh, don't understand. That's so can't go into that world. But it means so much more than that now, from a cultural and
0: a commercial perspective. The last thing I have for you is where could people find you, follow your journey, all that good stuff?
1: My chaos uh, is over at tfr.agency is the company. And then I'm pretty much TFR Charlotte on all handles.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. This has been so insightful and so great. And thank you for sharing your knowledge with everybody. Thank you for having me.